a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture that we just looked at. I want us to consider that just for a moment. What Paul writes there in Colossians 2. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, how did he do that? What does it mean? What's the significance? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. There, there was a record of debt that stood against me. There's a record of debt that stood against you. And we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling that record of debt. I, I love the, 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 the verse of His mercy is more... Uh, a new hymn written by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa that says this. It says, What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We, we had a debt that we could not afford that we stood beneath that that towered over us that crushed us under the weight of it but God canceled that debt how by nailing it to the cross Paul says there in Colossians 2 he nailed it to the cross he displayed his great mercy this debt is not equivalent to me buying you a cup of coffee and you going wow thanks for that cup of coffee I mean a cup of coffee is what a dollar Depends on where you go, it may be $10. But a cup of coffee, nonetheless, is not that great of a debt. I'm thankful if you buy me a cup of coffee. But I'm not going to thank you every time I see you. I'm not going to be overwhelmed and, and brought to tears because you brought me a cup of coffee. No, it's more equivalent, more close to being something along the lines of owing the debt of $1.9 billion for the building of Allegiant Stadium that houses the Las Vegas Raiders. Can you imagine if that was your debt? If you owed $1.9 billion and the, the price of not paying that off was your very life. Your death was the price. But someone paid that for you. They paid that debt. That's closer to what it's like. It is not equivalent, but it is closer. And I say it's only closer and not equivalent because the sin debt that I owe was against an infinitely holy God. And so the debt I owed was infinitely costly and more than I could ever pay. There is no way I could ever pay it. But Christ paid it for me. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. And through His blood, I have the forgiveness of sins. Through His blood, all who can't call on the name of the Lord are forgiven. Thanks be to God for His great mercy. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 7. We want to think more about the wonder and the beauty of God's forgiveness of our sins. 
We want to think about how does his forgiveness affect us? How does it impact us? How does it influence us? What is our response to his forgiveness in our lives? Because we want to read this encounter that Jesus has with a Pharisee and a woman who is known as a sinner in their town. So we'll be in Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 36. We read these words. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now before we get into what Jesus says to him, the the parable, I want to point out a few things there. We we come onto the scene where a Pharisee, who we learn is named Simon, has asked Jesus to come eat with him. He has invited him into his home, and what does Christ do? He, he goes into his home and he eats with him. Christ is the friend of sinners. He's the friend of religious gurus and theologians as well. He came in and he ate with the Pharisee. And we don't know why Simon invited him in. The speculation, certainly by the, the general attitude and posture of the Pharisees toward Jesus, is that he probably invited him in to examine him, probably He wanted to know more about him and to hear his teaching and maybe even to trap him. But he certainly wanted to to kind of look at him and and examine him and find out what exactly Jesus was doing. And so Christ comes in. It says he went into the Pharisees and, and reclined at the table. Now, because Jesus is a public figure, more than likely what this would mean is that when he comes in, the door is left open. This, this isn't something where, like in our culture, a, a famous person comes and you, you bring them into your house, you close the door, and you have this nice private meal with them. More than likely what's happening here is because he was a public figure, he was well known in the time, that when he invited him in, the door was left open, the town knew that Christ came in. And so what does the woman do? She hears that Jesus is in there. And it says in verse 37, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, what does she do? She comes in and she brings ointment, right? She doesn't doesn't know what's going on. She wasn't invited necessarily, but she comes in because it's a public figure and someone that she wanted to come and what we find out, she wants to worship, okay? And so she comes in and we don't know much about this woman. There's speculation on who she is. Some people think, She's identified later, Mary Magdalene, but the, the equivalent isn't quite there. It's probably not her, but we really don't know who she is. What we do know about her is that she is identified as a sinner. And we don't know exactly what this means. We don't know if there was this particular sin or that particular sin. All we know is that people understood that she 
was a sinner. This probably indicates that she had some type of habitual sin, habitual moral sin that she was involved in that brought her to the understanding, the characterization that she was indeed a sinner. And so she comes in and, and she, look at, look at what she does. She brings this alabaster flask of ointment and she stands behind him at his feet. The reason this is there is that they don't sit like we sit. Instead, they would be lounging, kind of laid out in the feet this way toward, and the table's over here. And so she comes behind to where his feet are and she begins to anoint his feet, weeping over his feet, wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. There is no regard, utter abandon. In this moment, from the lady, she is worshiping. She's worshiping. She is struck with the presence of Christ. Now, the Pharisee, in one of those wonderful moments that we see a picture of God's omniscience, Jesus' omniscience, even as a man, in verse 39, it says, The Pharisee had invited him, saw this, and he said to himself, right? He's thinking to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, for she is a sinner. And then he gets busted. Have you ever had one of those moments, maybe as a kid or as a teenager, where you think you're under the radar, right? And all of a sudden your dad is like, I know what you're thinking. And you're going, oh man, he does know what I'm thinking, right? The Pharisee's busted. Here he is. He's saying to himself, and Jesus says, answers to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Let me drive this home. I know what you're thinking. Let me teach you in this moment, Simon. And so Simon says, verse 40, he says, say it, teacher, teach me. Let me hear. Verse 41, Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace we, we see this moment where jesus steps aside he knows what simon's thinking he sees the judgmental glances he sees the man scoffing at the woman who is worshiping him. And he gives him an example. An example that drives home the importance of forgiveness. It drives home the result of forgiveness. How forgiveness affects us and how we see that in our lives. And the simple point that Jesus makes in, in verses 44 
all the way down to 46 is that there is no evidence of love or gratitude in Simon's life. It simply is not there. When he comes in, Simon does not treat him as one that he loves. He does not treat him as one that he is grateful for. He certainly does not treat him as one that he worships. But the woman is the exact opposite. The woman worships him. The woman anoints him. The woman uh, kisses his feet. She worships him. And so the evidence is clear is that the woman worships Jesus. Simon is caught in his religion. The forgiveness of Christ is evident in her life. And there's little evidence in Simon's life. You see, when, when he says, when Jesus says in verse 48, he says, And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. When he says it both times, this word is in the Greek, it's in the perfect. And the only reason I bring that out to you today is this, is that the English doesn't have a real good equivalent for translating the perfect tense in the Greek. The perfect tense, what it expresses is, is this completed action in the past that has present ongoing results. Something that has already occurred that is now being manifested that the results are being seen right now and so when he looks and he says your sins are forgiven your sins have been forgiven what he's saying is is that the woman's sins are already forgiven they have been forgiven and Jesus is affirming that in this moment he's saying therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven they've been forgiven and we see the results of that forgiveness right here Jesus is saying That's what he's expressing when he says your sins are forgiven. He is saying, listen, the evidence of her forgiveness is all over this moment. It's all over this moment. And that's what the application of the parable is all about in verses 44 through 50 when Jesus brings it all all together and says, this is what you need to understand, Simon. Is that the forgiveness that she has experienced from God through Christ is evident. Verse 47, where he says, therefore, it connects to I tell you. It does not connect to her sins are forgiven. That's important. When you're thinking, you're interpreting, you're looking at this, that therefore connects to I tell you. He's saying, therefore, the conclusion is based on her actions, I tell you this. He's not saying, therefore, because she did this, her sins are forgiven. No, he's saying, therefore, the conclusion, what is obvious, what is able to be seen, is that the reality is her sins are forgiven. There's a big difference because her wiping his feet, her anointing his feet, her kissing his feet did not merit forgiveness. They were evidence of the forgiveness. It points to to actions that, that her actions were expressing her spiritual reality. Her actions are are not, the spiritual reality of forgiveness is not the result of her actions. Does that make sense? It's the the four, when he says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. That four is indicating evidence. It's showing evidence. She isn't saying, or Jesus isn't saying that her love for him results in forgiveness, but that her love for him is the evidence of her forgiveness. So that love did not merit forgiveness. That love is the evidence, it's the result of forgiveness. It's the same thing, maybe this will help you understand. I want you to understand this because it's important. It's the same thing as if I say, 
it's raining outside because the windows are wet. Right? Now, does that mean that the moisture on the windows has produced this great rain cloud to come and to rain? Is that what that means? Is there anyone in here who would go, oh, the wet windows made it rain? No. We know that's not the case. We know that in that moment, in that statement, what is that expressing? It's, expre- it's expressing that the wet windows are evidence of the rain. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That love and her actions are evidence of the forgiveness. Now, here's the question where it comes really close into us. Do you want evidence that someone has truly been converted? Do you want to know that someone has truly experienced God's saving grace? then I would just simply ask a couple questions. Do they love God and worship Him? Do they truly worship God? Do they have thanksgiving in their heart? Do they have a a thankfulness, a thankful posture, a thankful attitude towards the Lord? If I want to know if someone is truly converted, if I want to know that someone has truly experienced God's grace and mercy, I'm going to look at their life and see if do they love God, do they worship God, are they thankful to God? You see, it is evident who has experienced forgiveness from God by their love for Him and their thankfulness to Him. It's evident. Scripture really does have no category for a believer who shows no fruit. You, you need to hear that this morning. There is no category in Scripture for a believer who is not fruit-bearing. A believer who shows no evidence of God's work in their life. And that presents some with a problem. We live in the Bible Belt, so it presents some with a problem. That they would come and they would say, you know what, I'm I'm a Christian, but there is no evidence in their life of being a Christian. There's no worship of Christ. There's no thankfulness to Christ. There's no love for Christ. But yet I'm a Christian. See, that, that's Simon's problem. Simon says, hey, I'm a, I'm a follower of God. I'm a theologian. I'm a Pharisee. I'm religious. I know the Scriptures. All of these would be statements that Simon would make and that Simon would make probably quite accurately. Simon did know the Scriptures. Simon was a theologian. But Simon likely was not a worshiper. You see, the woman worships, doesn't she? So you have to ask, do you genuinely desire to worship God? Are you genuinely thankful for His forgiveness? This text demands three more questions. Three questions. When we look at this text, here's the first one. Is who do I resemble, the woman or Simon? Who do I look more like? If we just analyze the characters, who do I look more like? The woman was a sinner, a worshiper, and a woman forgiven. The Pharisee, Simon, was religious, a scoffer, and a man condemned. Who do I look more like? Do I look more like the woman who is a sinner or the Pharisee who is a religious guru? Who do I look more like? The woman. She was known as a sinner, but she was a forgiven worshiper of Jesus the King. She knew she was a sinner, but she knew Christ was her Savior. That's a significant thing to know. I know I'm a sinner, but I know Christ is my Savior. 
I know that I can't stand before God. I know that I stand beneath a debt that I could not repay. But thanks be to God for His mercy in my life. Thanks be to God for His grace and His forgiveness. Do I look more like the woman, one who longed to worship, one who when she heard that Jesus was in Simon's house, she went into the house? She didn't go into the house and then learn that she was a sinner. No, she went into the house knowing who she was. She walks into that house a sinner and she sets aside all societal norms, all societal customs, and takes down her hair, weeps, anoints his feet, doesn't even care what's going on around She's weeping over him. And that word there in the Greek, the weeping, is not just one drop of a tear. No, it is this passionate, uncontrolled, just weeping where tears are flowing down off of her face. This was an emotional moment. She worships. And when she's overtaken by emotion, Jesus does not turn to her and condemn her for that emotion. No, he affirms her faith. He affirms her faith. He affirms that that she is worshiping, that she indeed is a sinner, but she is worshiping Him. Listen, our, our desire to worship tells us much about who and why we worship. Our desire to worship, or lack thereof, tells us much about who and why we worship. I, I fear that some have lost the meaning of what it even means to worship. If someone just walked in off the street, someone who knew nothing of our culture, who knew nothing of Christianity, they just dropped out of the sky, walked in here, and looked around, would they say those people are worshiping? How would it compare to that moment that Taylor Swift walks into a restaurant and a bunch of giddy little teenage girls go crazy. I fear that we have an understanding of worship, but it is absolutely towards the wrong things, the wrong people. Do we find more joy, more anticipation, more excitement in our hobbies than in our Lord? Do we worship self or God? Are we more excited and consumed by having fun and enjoying whatever it is we enjoy? Are we more enamored by that than we are of God? Are we more like the woman or are we more like Simon? Simon, he was very religious. He was very good at scoffing He was so caught up in his religion that he had little love for God. Why why do you think Jesus says that? He who is forgiven little loves little. You see, Simon, the pride of his own righteousness led him to be more 
concerned about his religiosity and the sin of others than he was of worshiping God. He was absolutely unaware of the depth of his own sin. He was more concerned with scoffing. Do you you see any affirmation in this account of Simon's faith? Do you see any affirmation of that at all? The account is void. It's void of any affirmation of Simon's faith and forgiven standing before God. He is the one who loves little. He's the one who is more worried about talking about or examining Jesus to see that he should actually worship Jesus. He's the one that could not see past his own religion to understand that the very God he claimed to know much about stood before him. I, I don't want that to be spoke spoken of me I don't want that to be spoken of anyone in here I I want us to be like the woman who would say you know what I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and we don't come in with these nice little face and these nice nice little masks and say hey we're great religious people no we come in and we are very honest about the fact that we are sinful that we stand condemned if left on our own, but instead of being condemned, we are forgiven. That we once stood beneath a debt we could not afford, but God forgave us because His mercy is more. That we come in and we're honest about who we are. That we're honest that we're sinful. That we're honest that we need Christ. That we encounter Christ when we sing of the fact that it's by His wounds we are healed. When we sing of His great faithfulness to save us just like He said He would save us. That we are struck with emotion. Maybe that emotion causes us to just stand in silence. Maybe it causes us to raise our hands in praise. Maybe it causes us to have tears, maybe it causes joy to well up in us, maybe it causes a smile across our face, maybe it causes us to just bow our head in reverent respect, but there is some kind of response. That we would not be a people when these songs come up or when Scripture is read about God making us alive in Christ, God nailing our sins to the cross, that we could just stand there unaffected as though it doesn't matter. That we could just stand there analyzing, religious, callous, theologically informed, but not worshiping. May that not be true of you or me. The second question. Second question, is my default attitude toward others more like Simon or is it more like Jesus? What is my default attitude when when someone comes in? Simon saw the woman and he couldn't get past her sin. He sees the woman and what does he think? This woman is a sinner. If Jesus knew who this woman was and what sort of woman she was, surely he wouldn't talk to her. What is our default position? Are we, by default, scoffers? Are we, by default, those who would turn up our nose, those who would step aside as though we are not or have not been in that very place? 
Jesus saw the woman and saw a sinner saved by God's grace. Simon saw the woman and scoffed at her. Jesus saw the woman and saw one whose faith has saved her. God's grace should radically change our perspective of people. It should radically change the way we look, our default position when someone comes to us. Because we all understand that we stand before God condemned. It should remind us that. It should remind us that we all owe a debt we cannot afford. It should remind us that we are all hopeless without Christ. This should remind us that we all would live in rampant sin without Christ's intervention and presence in our lives. Do you understand that? You understand that those that you might look at and go, wow, they're a sinner. They would never come in. That is exactly where we would be were it not for the presence of Christ, the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We need to understand that. You can't forget that. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, but you were dead in your transgressions that's just that's who you were that's why he writes in first corinthians 5 and 6 when he goes to this litany of people who will not inherit the kingdom of god and he he goes to this list of people who are just sinners and sinful and rebels he says and such were some of you that's where we were we should be reminded of that we should be mindful of that god's grace should remind us that no situation is hopeless No situation, no person is too far gone. No sin is too big for God's grace. If you sit here this morning and you sit here and say, no, I've rejected too many times. I've played the game for too long. I've gotten involved in too much. I've strayed too far. Then you're buying a lie. Because you can't be too bad, too sinful, too far You can't. Because His mercy is more. His grace is more. His grace is sufficient. He proved that on the cross. You're a sinner. You're a rebel. You're a transgressor against an infinitely holy God. Yes, indeed you are. As was I. But thanks be to God that Christ died on the cross. Christ, the very Son of God. The holy, eternal, almighty Son of God came and was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, just as we were, but yet he was without sin. And he went to the cross. Why? Because that's why he came. To give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45 tells us that. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he goes to the cross and he gives his life as a ransom. He dies on that cross and he raises from the grave. And we have the beautiful good news and promise of Scripture that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You turn, you repent from your sins and you trust in Christ, you will be saved. There's no too bad, too sinful, too far gone, too messed up about it. God's grace is too much, too great, too powerful, too deep to be overcome by any of your sin. The only two is that it applies to God's grace, not to you. So call upon Christ today. Third question. 
the question that they ask. Look at verse 49. Those who are at the table with him, they're gathered around, they're in the room, they've seen all this, they've heard the conversation. And they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? <laughs> who is this? Who is this? They, they knew the significance of Jesus affirming one's forgiveness before God. It's the same thing we see in Luke 5.21 when Jesus heals the paralytic. The response, he, he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone around, they're so concerned about that statement. Why? Because they say, who is this one who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The people understand this. They know for Jesus to say, who, or, your sins are forgiven. For him to declare and affirm that I know your spiritual standing before God and you are forgiven. They know the significance of this. I mean, you realize how ridiculous it would be for me to stand up and to say, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. I can't declare that. You know why? Because you didn't sin against me. You sinned against the holy God. And the one you sin against is the only one that can declare you're forgiven. I can't declare you're forgiven. God alone can declare you're forgiven. And Jesus declares that. He affirms that. Listen, unbeliever, you may not hear this today and go, who would say this? This is blasphemy. I would say you probably aren't thinking that today. I would say more often than not, it's more of a, who is this can, that can actually forgive my sins? Or perhaps it's more of a, who is it that thinks my sins actually need to be forgiven? I mean, who does he think he is to say that I actually need to be forgiven of my sins? You want to know who it is? It's the holy, eternal Son of God. You want to know who it is that forgives sin? He is Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who stands outside of time. The one who reigns supremely. The one who, Scripture says, all things were created through Him and by Him and for Him. You want to know who this one is who forgives sins? He is the one who was tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. He is the one who is described as the spotless Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God. He is the one that the prophet Isaiah said, bore our iniquities and through whom we are healed. He is the one who, when we turn to the book of Revelation, is the only one worthy to open the scrolls. He is the one who is described as the friend of sinners. He is the one who says, I am gentle and lowly. Are you worried about coming to him with your sin? Well, Jesus says, come to me. I am gentle and lowly. Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talked about in Mark, it is Jesus, the one who wept and sweat drops of blood in the garden as he thought about and considered the cup of God's awful wrath that was about to be poured out upon him. And yet, he is the one who walked to that cross. That's who stands and forgives sins. 
The one who says your sins are forgiven is the one whose shed blood seals the new covenant between man and God. He is the one whose blood covers all your sins. He is the one who knew no sin yet took on sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. He is the only one who will quench the thirst of your soul. He's the only one who will satisfy the hunger of your hope. He is the only one who was raised from the dead and brings life to dead hearts. He is the only one able to forgive your sins. And he is the only one in whom salvation may be found. So turn to him today turn to him today and believer worship him today we don't gather to worship a preacher we don't gather to worship a worship team we don't gather to worship a building we don't gather to worship a philosophy we gather to worship the one who forgives our sins and so this morning we gather around the table And we gather to remember and to consider the beauty, the grace, the mercy of Christ dying on the cross and shedding his blood on our behalf. As the deacons come down, they're going to come down and prepare to serve the Lord's Supper to us this morning. And as they do, I I don't know where you are spiritually this morning. I don't know if you would be one who would say, I I have never known the forgiveness of Christ. If that's you, I would call you to trust in Him. That is easy to do. The beauty and the simplicity of the gospel is that it is indeed simple. That it is simply a call to repent, to turn from your sins, and to turn to God, to Christ in faith. Repent and believe. Those of you who are here and believers, this is an opportunity for us to come and for us to remember what Christ did on the cross for us. This is the Lord's table. So we invite you, if you are a a believer in Christ, we invite you to partake of this meal together with us. Parents, Guide your children through this. If you are an unbeliever or a child who is an unbeliever, let it pass by you. This is something we do as believers to remember what Christ did on our behalf. Would you bow and go into an attitude of prayer as the deacons prepare to serve?